Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our Sutton service. To hear talks from each of our services, please visit christchurchlondon.org. Brilliant. Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to be able to uh, share with you. Thanks, Frank. Uh, yeah, fantastic to see you uh, today. If you don't know me, uh, my name's Sam. Uh, I'm originally from uh, Derbyshire. I moved down to uh, London area around five years ago. Uh, I attended church all my life, uh, but at the age of 17, I decided to follow Jesus uh, for myself. Uh, this morning, we're carrying on our series in Luke's Gospel. Uh, But before we dive into the portion of scripture we're going to look at today, uh, I want to begin with a verse from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, If you're uh, not familiar with 1 Corinthians, it is uh, a letter written to some of the first Christians. Uh, It's written by a man named Paul. And in chapter 15, Paul is highlighting uh, the significance of the fact that Jesus had died and then three days later he had been resurrected to new life. Uh, And as part of this whole paragraph, this whole portion in chapter 15, uh, Paul uh, kind of makes this staggering uh, statement uh, where, where he says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. He's saying, uh, without the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, there really is no point. Uh, Or as uh, Eugene Peterson uh, puts it, who wrote the message translation of the Bible, he he puts it this way. uh, If there's no resurrection, there's no living Christ. And face it, if there's no resurrection for Christ, everything we've told you is smoke and mirrors. And everything you've staked your life on is smoke and mirrors. Not only that, but we would be guilty of telling a string of barefaced lies about God. All these we passed on to you, verifying that God raised up Christ sheer fabrications if there's no resurrection. So when Paul writes in his letter to the church in Corinth, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. He's underlining the significance and the importance of the fact that Jesus had died, been buried, and then resurrected to new life which is especially important for us today as we come to this portion of scripture in in Luke's gospel, carrying on our series, uh, we come to this crucial moment where Jesus points to the resurrection, saying it will be the greatest sign ever given for the existence and authority of God in our world and in our lives. So I'm not sure where you're at this morning uh, faith-wise. Maybe you've called yourself a Christian for many years. Uh, Maybe this is all new to you. Perhaps uh, you are uh, someone who's quite skeptical uh, about, uh, uh, about Jesus and faith. Well, wherever you are at this morning, I think this is a great opportunity to lean in and explore Uh, more of this claim around Jesus' resurrection. So let's read our passage together. We're looking at Luke chapter 11, verses 29 to 32. As the crowds increased, Jesus said, this is a wicked generation. It asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so also the Son of Man, that's Jesus, will be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with the people of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. 
And now something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now something greater than Jonah is here. So what's going on in this passage today? Uh, Crowds of people are coming to Jesus, gathering around Jesus. uh, But many have come not to hear Jesus' teaching, uh, but they've come instead because they see Jesus as a source of entertainment. Uh, Elsewhere in uh, Luke's Gospel, Uh, We've seen how uh, crowds would gather to see Jesus uh, and they would come to him in desperation, hoping that they would be healed of their sickness. And we see how Jesus gladly receives these people and heals them. But now, here we have a cohort of people coming to Jesus, demanding to see a sign because, not out of desperation, but for their amusement. The rumors, the stories about Jesus have spread across the land and people have heard much about the signs he has been doing, the miracles he's performing, and so they've come to him as a source of entertainment. And so Jesus rebukes the crowd. He tells them off. Uh, Jesus' exact words are, this is a wicked generation. It asks for a sign but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. The sign of Jonah. Jesus is saying, you want a sign? You want to see me do something? Well, you're going to get it. But the sign will be the sign of Jonah. But what on earth does that mean? Let's dig into this a little bit. Here in Luke and in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus uh, compares himself with what uh, compares what will happen to himself with what happened to Jonah, the Old Testament prophet, uh, which is a little bit strange, uh, right? So uh, I don't know whether you're aware of this, uh, but Jesus only compares himself to one Old Testament figure. Only one. And if someone was to ask me, uh, who do you think Jesus compared himself with in the Old Testament? Uh, Jonah would not be my go-to prophet. Uh, Jonah, who, uh, let's be honest, is a a bit of a comic figure in the Old Testament. Uh, Jonah, the prophet who runs away when God asks him to do something. The prophet who is thrown into the sea. Uh, The prophet who becomes the, the dinner for a big fish. The prophet who is vomited back to reality. So now here is Jesus, who is anything but a comic figure, telling people that he resembles Jonah. So let's dig into the story of Jonah a little bit more. What is it that resemble that Jesus that connects Jesus and Jonah. Uh, Jonah is a really interesting book in the Bible. Uh, it's u- Jonah is unique among the Old Testament prophets uh, because typically prophets uh, in the Bible, the books, uh, so uh, books like Habakkuk, Amos, uh, Micah, are typically a collection of uh, God's words spoken through. The prophet, i.e. the prophet goes somewhere and says something, 
But it isn't the prophet speaking, it is God speaking through the prophet and it's recorded in the book. But the book of Jonah is different, it's unique. The book of Jonah doesn't follow or focus on uh, the words that God speaks through Jonah, rather it focuses on the story about the prophet. And that is the part, that is the focus of Jonah. The story of Jonah is important. It is something that Jesus is saying will resemble his own story, his own experience. Uh, the pattern of events in uh, the book of Jonah will correspond with Jesus' own story. Uh, Jonah is thrown into the sea and swallowed by a big fish. Three days later, he returns to the land of the living and he proclaims God's message to the people of Nineveh. The life of Jesus will follow a similar sequence, death, burial, resurrection, proclamation. Uh, the difference is, the difference between Jonah's sign to Nineveh and Jesus' sign is that in Jesus there is something far greater than Jonah, as Jesus himself says in our passage. The one who is greater is here. Everything about Jesus' sign is greater, deeper, and more real. Uh, Jonah experienced a, a kind of death as he was thrown into the sea to drown. Uh, J Jonah experienced a kind of burial as he rotted in the belly of a big fish. Jonah experienced a kind of resurrection as he was vomited back to the dry land. And Jonah, as he went to Nineveh, he only had an embryonic version of the good news. It was good, but it was limited. But in Jesus, we see something far greater. In Jesus, we see a real death, a real burial, and a real resurrection. And as Jesus rises to new life, he is able to offer the world a real salvation at the deepest possible level. Jesus is the greater one. The sign of the resurrection is the greatest sign ever to be given. Ever to be given. Uh, perhaps uh, a bit like the crowds who come to Jesus demanding a sign. Uh, we ourselves, we might skirt around uh, Jesus, uh, not fully putting our trust in him, not fully committing to him because uh, we want to see a sign before we believe in him. Uh, and in response, I think Jesus says to us, do you want a sign? Look at my resurrection. That is all you need. So how big is your vision of the resurrection? That's what I want us to consider for a moment. Let's consider the resurrection of Jesus. And there's three ways I think we can do that this morning. Uh, thinking about this uh, logically, uh, emotionally, and then I think there's a prophetic element as well. Uh, maybe you're the type of person that really likes the facts. Uh, you need the evidence. You, you want logic before you put your trust in Jesus. So here are four facts uh, surrounding the resurrection. Uh, firstly, uh, Jesus was dead. 
Uh, virtually every scholar concedes that Jesus died uh, by crucifixion. Uh, there's, there's no record of anyone ever surviving a Roman crucifixion, ever. Uh, even atheist New Testament scholars uh, would say, historically, it is indisputable that Jesus was dead. So Jesus existed and he died by crucifixion. He was dead. Second, uh, we have early accounts of the resurrection. Uh, some believe that the resurrection is just a, a legend, a story, or, or a myth that's kind of evolved and developed over time. Uh, but what we have uh, preserved for us are, is a, a creed of the earliest Christian church, a creed being a statement of belief uh, based on eyewitness reports about Jesus and about the resurrection. And this creed, which, uh, which claims the, uh, the resurrection, has been dated back uh, by scholars to within months of Jesus' death. Uh, third, we have the empty tomb. Uh, the best evidence for uh, the empty tomb when you're making a case for uh, the resurrection actually comes from the opponents of Jesus. I don't know if you've ever noticed this in the Bible, uh, but the opponents of Jesus admitted that the tomb was empty. Uh, when the, the, the disciples began to proclaim that Jesus had risen, uh, their opponents said that it was the disciples who must have stolen the body. So they're conceding that the tomb is empty. They're just trying to explain how it got empty. So Jesus was dead. We have early accounts of the resurrection. The tomb was empty. And lastly, there were eyewitnesses. Eyewitnesses. Uh, most of what we know about ancient history uh, comes from one, maybe two sources uh, of information. And yet, when you're looking at the evidence that the disciples had encountered the risen Jesus, there are no fewer than nine ancient sources inside and outside of the New Testament, each confirming that the disciples had encountered the risen Jesus. Jesus was dead. Early accounts of the resurrection, the empty tomb, there were eyewitnesses. So if you want to make a logical case of, based on evidence for the resurrection, you can do. But what about uh, an emotional kind of case for the resurrection? Uh, how about uh, the fact that there is, I believe, a deep longing inside each of us to know the truth about who and what and why we are the way we are. And I don't know if you've ever woken up or had that moment where you just think, what on earth is this all about? Why am I here? And I think we discover in the story of Jesus, and as we look to the resurrection, we discover and see that, that we were in fact once lost, and now we're found. That you were hurting, and now you've been healed. That you were condemned, and now you are saved. That through the resurrection of Jesus, confusion and pain and longing for something more is suddenly satisfied by a God who loves you and who longs to be in relationship with you. Uh, Jesus is your brother and your king. You are a member of the royal household. So you can make a logical case for the resurrection and also an emotional connection. What about a prophetic 
perspective. Uh, it's thought that the life, uh, death and resurrection of uh, Jesus is, uh, uh, or Jesus fulfilled over 300 prophecies uh, in the Bible, many of which uh, connect with uh, the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, when Jesus' first disciples uh, began preaching about the resurrection, uh, what they would typically do is they would point to scriptures in the Old Testament and say, these have been fulfilled by Jesus' resurrection. As if to say, see what, you'd see, see what was written many years ago. It has at last been fulfilled. So uh, the resurrection is this point in history around which everything pivots. It is the ultimate sign calling humanity to turn towards Jesus. Uh, if the people of uh, Nineveh heard Jonah's story and repented of their ways, how much more should our lives be radically changed by the story of the resurrection? How much more? Should our lives be changed by the resurrection? I don't know which of those three areas, logical, emotional, prophetic, really connects with you. Uh, if you're like me, probably a mixture of all of them. But I think there's something about the resurrection that we can't shy away from, that nobody can shy away from. You have to face it and decide what is your response going to be. Uh, if we do nothing else this morning, then let this short time that we have together in church give you a bigger and bolder vision of Jesus' resurrection. Because through the lens of the resurrection, we see everything differently. Everything has changed. And I don't know about you, but I, I really wish and I long that my vision of the resurrection was bigger and by that I mean I, I wish and I long that the decisions I make, uh, the way I speak, uh, the way I approach my work, the way I spend time with friends and family, uh, every aspect of my life, I wish all of those things were influenced more and more by the truth of the resurrection, more than anything else. And so much so that, that when I'm feeling anxious or stressed because of a meeting at work or, or a family situation that needs resolving, I long that I would remember the resurrection, that I would remember that what matters most isn't how well I perform in that meeting that's coming up or how I manage to resolve that family situation. But what matters most is because of the resurrection, whether or not I honour Jesus with my words and actions. Uh, the earliest uh, Christians who faced persecution for their faith, uh, they had a big vision of the resurrection. And by that, I just mean it was bold. It was in their minds. It, it dictated everything that they did. They had a big vision of the resurrection. Uh, they would uh, use uh, catacombs as places to hide uh, from uh, persecution, uh, places to gather uh, for secret worship uh, and, and time together. And it's since been discovered that uh, one of the, the most common images that was scribbled or graffitied onto the walls of these kind of tombs where they would gather, uh, scribbled on the walls were depictions of Jonah. Depictions of the story of Jonah. 
Why? Because in Jonah, they had a story that connected to the heart of their faith. Uh, Jonah's story inspired them. Uh, no longer was Jonah this comic figure who was swallowed by a big fish. Uh, no, now Jonah pointed to someone greater. Uh, one glance at Jonah's graffiti on the wall and you would see Jesus' resurrection. You'd see the cornerstone on which our faith is built, on which everything depends. Jonah was this sign pointing towards Jesus. So I, I wonder, my challenge to suppose to you is, what is your equivalent to the Jonah graffiti on the wall? And if you don't already, why not hang something by your front door as a reminder of the resurrection? This reminder to orientate your life around Jesus, that the resurrection becomes the lens through which you see everything. Why don't uh, the band come back up? Um, we're going to worship again in a moment. But the, the drawings of Jonah on the wall is one thing. But the thing that resonates with me uh, the most, I would say, is uh, this practice of some of the earliest Christians, which I think is largely lost now, uh, which is disappointing. And it's the practice of facing uh, the rising sun. Uh, the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. And throughout church history, uh, Christians have given uh, great thought and intentionality uh, to remembering the resurrection. Uh, many Christians uh, would intentionally face east when they pray as this physical reminder of the resurrection of the risen Jesus. So just as the sun rises in the east, they would orientate their bodies to face the rising sun. I don't know whether you've ever been to a sunrise Easter service, something like that. The point being that as the sun rises on that Easter morning, you see this ball of burning gas and you remember that there's someone far greater that rose many years ago and it changed everything. Uh, even to this day, uh, established church buildings will face east, or if not the building, the altar will be pointing east. Uh, we kind of lose a bit of that as we gather in uh, a theatre. Uh, something not to get lost in, but it's something to admire. The point being that to be a Christian was to orientate uh, your thinking around the resurrection of Jesus. So I'll leave you with this and we're going to worship again. How will you remember the resurrection this week? How will you let it be the lens through which you go to that tricky meeting, that you try to resolve that family challenge that you have? How is the resurrection so boldly in your vision that it changes the course of your week? Like Jesus says, I'll give you a sign, the sign of Jonah. It'll be that I'll die, bury, and I'll be raised to new life. Would you stand with me? And I'll pray, and we'll worship again. So, Father, I thank you, and Jesus, thank you that you gave us this sign, that you uh, went to the cross, died, but you rose again. 
And Lord, I pray now that you would give us a bold vision of the resurrection, that we would, that it would be the lens through which we see and make, uh, see our lives and make decisions. Father, I thank you that you died. Jesus, that you, you rose again. I pray this week, when we hit that tricky spot, we would remember that everything has changed and that our actions, our words, would honor you above everything. Thank you for the resurrection. Amen.